found on page four. Also, by the way, I'm sorry, if you are brand new uh, to Redeemer, we have a gift for you. Uh, on the table out there, we have a coffee mug uh, that says Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and uh, it has coffee in it, so uh, make sure to grab one of those on your way out. Uh, if you're willing, we invite you to fill out our Connect card that's found in your bulletin just to give us a record of your being here. Okay, our scripture can be found on page 4. This is Romans 6, 1 through 4. Paul speaking to the church at Rome. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The word of the Lord. Well, the theme of this series that I'm preaching through is the question, who am I? Discovering your identity in Christ. And I think in this information-laden age that we live in, it's harder and harder to get and understand what and who you are because it seems that we're constantly being bombarded with messages that are trying to tell us who we are. The marketers have become uh, increasingly sophisticated at sending us messages that if you are this person if you, or if you have this product, you will become this person and uh, our identities can become muddled. Uh, I was uh, studying the internet. I basically looked through about three billion pages every week in order to bring you the most salacious information in my sermons. And I found this very interesting uh, news story uh, about an Argentinian stolen at birth, now 32, learns his identity. The search is finally over for Abel Madriaga, whose pregnant wife was kidnapped by security forces in Argentina 33 years ago. After decades of doubt and loneliness searching for his son, he has found him. For the first time, the son, the young man, said, I know who I was, who I am, still marveling at his new identity. Francisco Madariaga Quintela, a name he only learned last week. If you remember in the 70s, the Argentinians, they were ruled by a dictator and they uh, basically kidnapped people, tortured and killed many of them. Well, about 400 children were stolen during that era uh, from mothers who were tortured and killed and, and given out. And uh, there's this group of women uh, the, they're called the grandmothers of the plaza who are still searching for their sons and for their children uh, that were taken during this time. Well, Madriaga, Abel, and his wife, Silvia, were taken by Argentinian security forces. They were separated, and, uh, and uh, Silvia was pregnant. The father, Abel, managed to escape but never found his wife, and, and uh, the last they saw was her being taken away and he always wondered, you know, what happened to her? What happened to my son? I think he found out his wife had been killed but was searching for his son. And so he, he lobbied in 83 for the government to create a DNA database with the hopes of maybe one day finding his son. Well, it turns out um, that the son uh, was, who they were planning to name Francisco, was taken by a military intelligence officer who brought uh, the child home to his wife they named him Alejandro. 
But Francisco never ever felt like he belonged to this family. He didn't look like them. And as he grew up and he never found his place, he finally confronted his adopted mother at age 32 and she broke down and told me the truth. The next day he approached the grandmothers and, and, uh, and took the DNA test and, and the results arrived. And lo and behold, there was a match between Abel and his son Francisco. Trembling before the cameras, Abel recalled his reunion with his son. When he came through the door that night, we recognized each other and the hug that brought us together was totally spectacular. The father said at, at times, excuse me, this, oh yeah, I wondered what I was living for. I had to find a way to continue, hoping for this moment. Hugging them, him for the first time filled a hole in my soul. The son, Francisco, stopped smiling only at the mention of the name that was given by his adoptive father, Alejandro. Never again will I use this name, he said. To have your identity is the most beautiful thing there is. I think that is true, to have your identity, if it is a good identity. But we must know who we are, because it is impossible to consistently live in a manner that is inconsistent with the way that you see yourself. In other words, the way that you see yourself, you ultimately will live as. I think that's one of the greatest difficulties about living as a Christian. Many of us who call on the name of Jesus Christ, who claim to be Christians, who are Christians have tremendous difficulty in our Christian life. Frankly, our lives do not have much joy in them. But there's an unsettledness to them, a defeatedness to them. And I think one of the reasons for that is this, that we don't really know who we are. That we believe the lies of the evil one or of the world that communicate to us a message that is inconsistent with, what is hap- with that which has happened to us. And so that is what Paul is communicating here. He wants to explain to us who we are. And so radically has Jesus Christ transformed us that he has to use words like death and life to paint a picture. He tells us some amazing things in this sermon. The first is that you died. I don't know if you knew that or not, but you died. What exactly does that mean? You died to your old identity that you could receive a new identity, that you could walk in a newness of life. And so if we're ever going to uh, achieve victory in our Christian life, experience the joy that we are um, called upon and promised in the Christian life, we're going to have to understand these things. So we're going to dig into some of these questions. What does it mean to die? We have to recognize the fact that we are already dead in a sense. Number two, we need to recognize that we've been reborn. We've been baptized, if you will. We need to embrace our baptism if we're going to understand our identity. We have to recognize our death. We have to embrace our baptism. And finally, we need to walk in the newness of life. We need to walk in the people who we are, not the people that we were. Well, let's dig in with these questions. Number one, we need to recognize our death. Paul starts out this chapter by saying, what shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, why is Paul saying this question? Because he understands as he's uh, uh, building this tremendous argument that there are going to be questions from people reading it. See, Paul just communicated in the chapter before that the law came in to increase the trespass of sin, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That the grace of Jesus Christ outpaces even the sin of, uh, of people. And so, under a twisted argument, one could say, well, why don't we simply continue sinning? Because grace will continue to abound. In fact, that was an argument. Based on what I'm hearing, Paul, if grace continues to abound, well, I can pretty much do whatever I want because grace will abound. And Paul is saying, if you have that argument, if you believe that argument, you do not understand what really has happened. And Paul answers in this way. He says, by no means. A good translation would, uh, by no means would be absolutely not. Or forbid it that you would think in such a way. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And if you read the Greek, it actually would translate better this way. We, how can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, this is a preposterous concept to live in such a way because something so radical has happened. Paul says, we've died to sin and the Greek tense is the aorist tense. And basically, the aorist tense is used when you are communicating an act or a fact. Something that has already happened. Something that is true. Something that will not be changed. It's, it's, it's already been done. We died to sin. How can we still live in it? Your translation might be, how can we still continue in sin? We died to it. Now we need to unpack that a little bit because some of us are asking the questions, is this, is this saying that because we died to sin that we will no longer sin? No, Paul is not saying that. That clearly would be uh, uh, inconsistent with what the Bible says, right? We have to, the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. We need to take every verse in the context of everything. In 1 John 1.8, for instance, it says, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. No, Paul is not saying that we will not still commit sins. He's saying something different. By the way, there are some people that believe that. It's, a, it's, it's called perfectionism. In other words, there's a plane of Christian existence that I will get to at some point in my life where I will no longer sin. I will be perfect. And I would like to meet you if you are that person. As far as I know, there's only one person that has never, ever, ever sinned and never, uh, and that was Jesus Christ. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Indeed, our experience teaches us that. We still commit sins even though we love Jesus. If we believe this, that because we've died to sin, we shouldn't sin, that's going to lead to a tremendous amount of depression as we never make that standard. No, Paul is not saying that. So what is Paul saying when he says we who died to sin still, how can we still live in it? What he's saying is 
We who died to the reign of sin. We who died to the rule of sin. We who died to the power of sin over us. The reign of sin. Other places in the scripture help to back this up, right? Colossians 1.13 tells us that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, from the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of his son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, we were once under the domain or rule of darkness, and we have been transferred into the kingdom of light. Ephesians 2.1 puts it this way, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now in work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, at one time, you were dead in trespasses and sins, and you walked in the way of the world under the power of the evil one. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh and were children of wrath. But God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. In other words, here's how you once were, here's how you once walked, here's to who you once belonged and now you belong to someone different. To sum it up, Paul is saying it's preposterous that we who died to sin, to its condemnation and its power, would continue on after having been raised with Christ, believing in Christ, in the same manner that we were before. Not that there would not still be sin, but that we would no longer be under the reign and power of sin. It has been broken, so to speak. Why will we not keep sinning? And the answer is this. Because we have a new nature. There's a new creation in us. See, when Martin Luther and the Reformers started preaching this, people, particular, for instance, the Catholic Church, said you can't start communicating this salvation by grace through faith. Because people, no longer having the control of the, the law over them, the the fear of sin and death will go crazy. And yes, they would, except for one thing. They're a new creation in Christ. An apple tree bears apples, and an orange tree bears oranges. First John put it this way, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning. Because he has been born of God. See, when you became a Christian, all of this came to you, all of this applied to you, but the reality is you've died in Jesus Christ. You're a new creation in him. The old is gone. The new has come. It was in 1862 that President Lincoln uh, gave the Emancipation Proclamation, which was an executive order freeing the slaves uh, in the United States and all under indentured servitude. Um, But it was in the uh, 1865 by the 13th Amendment after the Civil War when it was officially codified 
uh, by the whole of the government. And it abolished slavery and involuntary servitude. Four million slaves were officially freed. You can imagine that day if you were brought to this country involuntarily, put in chains. Indeed, you had lived under this system. Your parents and your grandparents, you were a slave. You answered to a master. He said, you do this, you do this. He had the power of life and death over you. Well, no longer. On the, the issue of that uh, proclamation, excuse me, of that 13th Amendment, they were free. They could go where they like. They could do what they wanted. They no longer had masters over them. But the old masters, they knew that they could not afford to lose these people. And they had done a good job trying to keep them uneducated and uninformed. And so they took different tactics, didn't they? Coercion through a different way. No, that's not what the law really says. This is what the law says. And therefore, you have to. And they did it and communicated in such a way and in cahoots with one another in such a way that many slaves, even though they were free, continued to live as slaves. Now all analogies are imperfect, as is this one. But the core of the truth is this, that we were once under an old master, sin and death, and it told us what to do and we did it. And indeed we wanted to do it. But we have been set free through the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been transferred to a new realm. And all of the resources of this new king and this new kingdom are available to us. So we've died to the reign of sin. Now my question to you is this, do you believe it? In reality, Carlos, I don't. Yeah, I can nod my head here as you're saying these things. I can look at the scripture. But when sin calls, I feel powerless against it. I must obey. When that temptation to be full of bitterness against that other person and what they've done to me continues on. Thank you, Garzon. I must do it. When I feel that pull of pornography, that computer calling to me I have no choice I have to follow it I have to do it it's my master indeed when I experience those feelings that I'm worthless that I'm nobody that I'm less than worthless I must heed them I must obey them for I'm a slave to them the scriptures are telling you and I am telling you that that is not true if you are a Christian Satan has no power over you but the power to lie. The power to deceive. And until you understand and believe who you are, you may be free, but you will act like a slave. You have died, Christian, to the reign of sin. So walk out of the cage. Even when you do sin, You have the power to communicate the truth of it that it's not me. 
It's sin dwelling in me. It's Paul who's communicating those words. We're going to dig into that very soon in Romans 7. No, I've died to that reign of sin. I don't belong to it anymore. And so this leads me to my second point. If we've died to sin, we need to embrace our birth. To embrace our baptism. Verse 3 puts it this way. Paul continues on in his argument. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Christian, even before you were baptized with water, if you became a Christian, you were baptized into Christ Jesus. It says it right here. Most of us, when we think about the word baptism, we think about water baptism. And baptism is a sacrament. And a sacrament is a sign. It's a sign that communicates a deeper reality. It's a corresponding picture, if you will, of a deeper reality. This word baptize appears in the New Testament a variety of times and in the Old Testament. I don't know if you knew that or not, in the Greek of the Old Testament. The word baptize means to, to dip, uh, 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 to, to, to spray, to sprinkle. It also means to overwhelm, to overwhelm. But when you see uh, baptism, you always see transformation occurring. So in the Old Testament, for instance, in Exodus 12, the uh, priest was supposed to take the hyssop and dip it, baptize it, if you will, in the blood of the goat and spray it on the articles in uh, in the temple and make them holy or actually make himself holy, the ability to actually participate and be with God. There was a transformation from unholy to holy. In 1 Kings 5, Naaman the Syrian, if you remember the Syrian king, who's a great man, but he has leprosy. He goes to Elisha, the prophet, and Elisha says, go to the river and, uh, and wash in the river five times. And the translation would be, and baptize in the river Five times and you will be clean. Naaman at first says, that's ridiculous, I'm not going to do it. But he goes and he does it and he is transformed. The leprosy leaves him. And so what does it mean that we have been transformed or baptized into Christ Jesus? It's only other, one other place in the New Testament where it, where it talks about being baptized into someone. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us about being baptized into Moses as an example of this. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, he's speaking of the Jewish people, were all under the cloud and passed through the sea and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Well, what does that mean? Think of it this way. The Jewish people were slaves. They were ruled by Pharaoh. They belonged to him. They were part of that kingdom and that reign. And Moses was sent as a representative of God to God's people to lead them out to freedom. And so you know the story. You've seen Charlton Heston and uh, they come to the Red Sea. They've been out and they come to the Red Sea and here comes Pharaoh and the people complain to Moses. You've 
brought us here to kill us in this sea. There's no way to get across it. And God tells Moses to stretch out his hand. And as he stretches out his hand with the staff of God, the waters part and the people go through. They are, in essence, baptized into Moses underneath the cloud of the Holy Spirit and in the sea of, as they walk through the sea. You see, the sea represents death in the Old Testament. They're supposed to go to death. But there's a new leader leading them, Moses. And he leads them, literally from death, through death, to life. He saves them from Pharaoh. But he can't save them from sin. He can't save them from judgment. He can save them from an earthly power, but he cannot save them from themselves. Because when they get to the other side of the Red Sea, they're in a, under a new rule. They've been baptized into Moses. But Moses does not have power over sin and death. But there is a new person that has come. Jesus Christ who in the same way as Moses leading the people away from the reign of Pharaoh is, has led the Christian away from the reign and rule of sin and death. And the sea that he has brought them through is the sea of death itself. Do you not know that all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? See, this new baptism actually changes not only my circumstances, but my heart through killing it and giving me a new heart. And Jesus is the body. He is the vehicle through which we travel through death and emerge on the other side to life. See, this is quite amazing. But 2,000 years ago, when Jesus hung on that cross, I was there. My sinful self died on the cross with him. Before I was even born, my sinful self was there on the cross. I have been crucified with Christ and no longer lives, but Christ lives in me. When Jesus Christ went into that tomb, I went into that tomb. As verse 4 says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. See, we were buried with him so that we could be raised with him. Our sinful nature went to death with him because if we went to death alone, we would surely die. I don't know if the picture is up here. I recently got the opportunity to go to Israel, thanks to you all, on uh, sabbatical and I got to visit uh, the tomb of Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you know the story, but there was a, a man there uh, who's been there for a long time who I respect and I asked him, you know, where were the, the, the secret places to go? And he said, listen, if you want to see the tomb of Christ, do not go to where everyone is going, the Holy Sepulchre, the tomb of the Holy Sepulchre. He says it's close to there, but it's not there. It's actually in this little place called the Chapel of Nicodemus off to the side. 
And the reason they don't advertise this is because there's no way you could get 4 million people a year through this thing. But you go, you go around this thing. There's not even lights in there. So you're going to have to, you know. And so I took my spelunking gear and you go into this small, dimly lit room carved out of rock and there's a hole. And you turn on your light and if you sort of go down in there and you have to bend down, go ahead and go to the next there is a series of, of it's, it's just a small place, but these are, there are two uh, tombs cut into the rock. And basically what they would do is they would take the body and wrap the body in spices and linens and put the body in there and seal the tomb for a year so the body would decompose. And then they would come back and they would take the bones and put them in an ossuary. That's actually how they, you know, the final resting place. And so... Here I was, nobody around, quite possibly kneeling at the very place where Jesus Christ was in the tomb for three days. And I was overwhelmed. But I didn't, even at that time, really understand or fathom the reality that the truth of the matter is that I was in that place before, into Christ back then. That I laid in that tomb three days, my sinful self, if you will, dead, so that the new me could come out. How amazing it could have, would have been to be there to see that stone rolled away and that body raised to life. See, here's the truth, my friends. Jesus is exactly to you what his cross is. I'll say it again. Jesus is exactly to you what his cross is. To some of you, Jesus is no more than a great example of a way we are to live, to emulate his principles, and his teachings. The reality is that each one of us is going to face the sea of death. And if you face the sea of death with only your own sins, you will sink. But the Christian has been baptized into Christ, into his death, so that we would be raised with him. So do you know who you are? And do you know who he is? Some of us are boat builders. Kind of like Noah. We know the storm and the flood is coming. And so we're busy building an ark so that we can get across the sea of death. Your ark might be your money. I need to build as much of it as possible because it can stave off the future. No, it can't. Your ark might be your career, your position, your notoriety. I'm going to establish immortality. I'm going to have a wing of the hospital dedicated for me, a building at the university. But it won't stave off death going to strengthen my body. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to eat right. 
I'm going to do everything possible to remain as young as possible for as long as possible. You will face the sea and you will sink. Satan constantly jerks us around. You're not worthy. This didn't happen. Trust yourself. But you see, the Christian need not fear death because you already died. You're on the other side. So we must embrace our baptism. I belong to Christ. I love what Martin Luther used to do when he was tempted to despair, when he felt the condemnation of of Satan, when he saw his world falling apart around him, he would shake his fist to Satan and say, Baptizatus sum. I am a baptized man. Not I've been baptized with water, but I've been baptized into Jesus Christ. You can't touch me. I'm a baptized woman. I'm a baptized man. We've all got to stand on something. And we've been given God's Son Himself to stand on. So when Satan drives you to despair, when the voices are crashing upon you, when the temptations are upon you, make your stand. I'm a baptized man. I don't have to stand under you. You don't own me anymore. And run to Christ. When the world is crashing in, when I see my failures and my inabilities, look to the reality of who I am. I am a baptized woman. I'm a baptized man. Embrace your baptism. Because it's impossible to live consistently in a manner that's inconsistent with the way you see yourself. Why has Christ done all this? So we could walk in the newness of life, my final point. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Jesus was raised from the dead and you too have been born again. You're a new creation. And so Colossians 3.2 puts it this way. Set your mind on things that are above. Not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. See, just as, there's a comparison there, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you too have been raised from the dead by the glory of the Father that you might also walk in the newness of life. Notice it doesn't say that you might be saved, though that is true. That you might have an inheritance when He comes or when you die and are born again into Him. No, it says that you might walk now in the newness of life. That we might live the resurrection life now. Because we have been raised to a new reign, a new rule, we have a new leader and a new spirit in which to walk. See, think of all the forces against you under the reign of sin and death. 
are there not equal, if not more, power and resources under the reign and rule of grace? So we must walk in the newness of life. We must live out of our baptism. How do we do that, Carlos? As we died to life, we must learn to die as we live. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God, for sin will have no dominion over you. What am I saying? What I'm saying is simply this. In every single one of our hearts, there is a cross and there is a throne. Positionally speaking, we've already died on the cross. We're already seated at the throne of God positionally in terms of where we are. That is justification. And so now it remains for us to simply walk out in real life, in real time, what has already happened to us. See, normally in our hearts, what we want to do is stay on the throne and we want Jesus to stay on the cross. But as we had to change those places when we came to Christ, so we must walk in those places as we live throughout the day. We must make a decision to get off the throne in our heart as we live and to go to the cross and to give the throne to Jesus Christ. And what is amazing is when you do this, when Christ is put in his proper place and you are put in your proper place, all of the resources and power of God comes to bear upon you. And you start to see in your heart and in your life all that is true positionally coming true in reality. You want to experience the peace of God in Jesus Christ? Go to the cross and put him on the throne. You want to be free of succumbing to the temptations that constantly assail you? Get off the throne. Go to the cross. Put him on the throne. Because he is the power. He is the one that overcame sin and death then and he is the one who overcomes sin and death now. We are baptized men and women. So let us live as baptized men and women. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him take up his cross and follow me. It truly is amazing and true. Can I say that? Truly is amazing and true. That when you die, you live. And when you lose yourself, you find yourself. It's not that Christianity has been found impossible and so not tried, but it's been found difficult and left untried. But the reality is you're simply living out who you already are. It's consistency. Because it's impossible to consistently live in a manner 
that's inconsistent with who you are and how you see yourself. I want to know the power of Christ in his resurrection. Not only then, but now. And I want you to know it too. And it comes when we surrender the throne of our heart and we go to the cross. When we die and discover that we actually find life and death. You will not know the life of Christ in reality until you learn to die. He takes care of the rest. We really have to know only one thing. How to die. Let's pray. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for this passage because it is the truth. Father, help us to base our life on this. Let it be our rock. Let us not continue to be swayed by every form of teaching. The reality is we have died to the reign of sin. That we've been baptized into your son, Jesus Christ, and raised to walk in the newness of life. Let us joyfully step off the throne and get on the cross and give Christ his rightful place on the throne of our hearts. For when we lose our life, we find it. And when we die, we live. Let that be true of us. Let it be true of Redeemer Presbyterian. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.